You're now listening to We Might Need Counseling. Welcome to another episode of the We Might Need Counseling podcast. I'm your host, Dougie Cash. I'm Jovan. Get over here, Meredith. (laughs) (laughs) And today's episode, we have a very special guest, friend of mine, Makad Brooks, super talented actor. He is the star in the upcoming Mortal Kombat film coming out April 16th, 2021. He plays Jax. Uh, We're really excited to have him on and really just talk about a little bit of his filmography because he has quite a bit of projects that you wouldn't even know, right? It's like he did Supergirl and and, and a few Tyler Perry films and now Mortal Kombat, which is huge. So we're going to talk to Makad. But first, Joba, how's everything, man? You looking good, brother? You looking young? You looking healthy? Thank you. That's what COVID staying inside, not going outside will do for you, right? But things are opening back up. So all this is about to change. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because it's like, I know you're married, so it's like, you don't look stressed out at all. So if this is what marriage looks like, I may actually have to sign up. Don't let the smooth taste fool you, brother. Right. <laughs> what happens? You do what you can. Oh, my God. So what's going on in the news today? I read somewhere the like Pepe Le Pew is getting canceled. Yeah, there was the Pepe Le Pew cancellation. It's hard for me. And, you know, I'm actually glad you brought that up because I think you and I kind of talked about the whole cancel culture, the Dr. Seuss books. Obviously, some we know about cancellations that have happened in the past. And then this, it's just like, you know, I remember the Pepe Le Pew sketch, the Chappelle, not sketch, but the bit he did in the Killing Him Softly bit that he did back in 2000. It was a comedy sketch It's it, it, where he just talked about like, man, what kind of, rapist is this guy you know like laughing about it he went into the sesame street thing and everything but the point is is that that was a joke someone in the new york times made this an article and it became a thing where they're actually removing pepe Le pew from different media cartoon you know and, and it's crazy you and i spoke about this a little bit before all the time i don't know if you remember this was years ago we were talking about like just cartoons that we both grew up on <laughs> And we were like, Pepe Le Pew is kind of a rape. <laughs> right, right. Sure, that's it's what you're funny, saying, But it's like, you could go to all of them. This. Anyway, we'll circle back to this because we have Makad. Let me let Makad in now. But that is interesting. God, I like that uh, that little limp, like logo. That's, that's dope. There you um, go. Yo. Good, brother? Hey, what's up? How you doing, man? How you doing? You all right? You're like, looking yeah, good, yeah. man. Doing really well. Okay. Yeah. Let me introduce my brother away. Hold on. Star of Supergirl for what six, seven seasons feels like an eternity. Star of Nobody's Fool, Fall from Grace, a few Tyler Perry mega hits. There were mega hits on Netflix. Yeah, uh, Nobody's Fool did, did its thing yeah. theatrically. Tiffany Haddish, Tiffany just won a Grammy. I know, <laughs> Tiffany just won a Grammy. First black woman to win a, a Grammy in that category since 1987. Whoopi Goldberg, crazy, crazy. Hold on, and Tiffany's family, yeah, listen. We got to celebrate um, each other. We got to celebrate each other. Absolutely, man. Yeah. But then more importantly, hold on now. Star, and this, this is big, star of yeah. the upcoming Mortal Kombat reboot dropping April 16th, 2021 in theaters and HBO Max. He plays Jax. That rhyme. We have Makad Brooks. <laughs> you took my up, joke from me, Dougie. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say. Makad, you look especially jacked today. That's my dad joke of the day, though, you know? <laughs> Thank you, man. I'm back in the gym, so I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I, that could be misconstrued as hitting on him, so I, maybe I saved you. No, right? maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Makad, it's so funny. The last time we... These days, you know, yeah, maybe. These days. You know, yeah, yeah. 
Yo, it's funny. The last time we all were on a Zoom call was right after the George Floyd incident, and you had a completely different. We had a remember yep. we had the, the, the call, yeah, you had a yeah, completely yeah. different look. You know, a lot more hair going yep. on and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, like yeah, we the George Floyd public execution, as I call it. Yeah, I shaved my own head. What I was doing was I was trying to like do a shout out to the essential workers because I I like I knew they weren't getting haircuts, and so I was like, look, y'all ain't gonna do it. I ain't gonna do it. And then that lasted about five months. I was like, fuck this. I got to change this shit uneven as fuck. My hair is still here, but it's hanging on. It's hanging, brother. Hey, you got options. It's Trust hanging me. on. I mean, right, hey, this has been a go-to. I do me. have options. <laughs> it's funny because like, if I let my hair grow out for like a week or two, people go, oh, you have hair? I'm like, yeah. They go, well, why you cut it? I go, because it's fucking easy. <laughs> It it's is. easy. It is. it is. It's so easy, bro. It's just yeah. so funny. If I'm trying to look super clean, I, I'm not even the guy who, yeah, you got to get the lineup, got to get super clean, you know. Right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Like, I, like, I used to be that guy, but, like, the gas, the amount of traveling you have to do, the hundred, like, I, I don't know, I was going through an $80, $100 haircut every time. I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that yeah, in L.A.? Crazy, bro. Or is that because they were good? That's in L.A. Of, yeah, see, see, hold on. I don't want to. Yeah trash anybody who's a barber in California. But I'm gonna be honest, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from I'm from the Bronx. I'm from New York. Oh, it's a different level. Different yeah, level. But he's barbershop on every corner. It's $20, $25 for the haircut. And they all get busy. Nah. Out here, <laughs> the barbers don't necessarily get busy. But if they cut celebrities, you know, they'll charge 80. I got one guy charging $150. And he ain't even that nice. Yeah. He's crazy. And you go to him. And you go to him. I was paying, I don't know, like for a while, I was paying 125 and the barber was coming with me, right? So then I would go to him, maybe like 75, right? Mm-hmm. But like, if you're trying to keep it clean, you get two haircuts a week. Yep. Easily. Easily. In our business, yeah. yeah. And here's what got me one time. And I'm not a cheap person, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was going to say, I'm not cheap, but I'm not stupid. Right. And if, if I can save $7,000 a year and put that towards Bitcoin, mm. or if I can save $7,000 a year and put that into a medium yield mutual fund, right. I'm going to shave my head. Right. right. <laughs> and so that means that's in, in the last eight years, it's $70,000, you know what I'm saying? Like plus injury. Like what, what are you talking about? Just so you can cut my hair. When I know for a fact you're cutting his hair for $25. The dude who came in before me paid you $25. The dude who's coming in after me is paying you $35. I'm paying you 80, 90, 100. You, you Makai Brooks. Because you know what I do for a living. Yeah, you Makai Brooks. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? No, bro. Hey, wasn't that on Chappelle's show when they found out how much money he had? He went to the barber. He said, that'll be $10,000. <laughs> exactly. That's what they do. They go, oh, you've been on TV, right? Okay, cool. You want to see me now? Yeah. 200. 200. What? Yeah. All you did was you That was the old price. All you did was my side. That was the, or- that was the old price. <laughs> 25 is for, for the children. I have a question, because so, I know one of the biggest things like that I know about you is we always sort of joke about this. It's like you are in immaculate shape. Was it hard for you not working out going back to last year? Everything was just shut down. Like, how did you deal with that? Someone who's always physically fit. I still worked out. I got like a home gym situation. It wasn't like I went and got the whole gym gym, but I got the stuff I needed. Right. Like, you know, there's like I got the free weights. I got like some maces and some kettlebells. Kettlebells, yeah. yeah. The ropes, that kind of stuff like that. I got myself a boxing heavy bag. So, yeah. For me, there was like, it was just a way of moving that exercise into a different place. Mm -hmm. 
more natural place in some ways. And so like, I'm never going to be in jack shape. Like I'm not going to walk around life in jack shape. Trust me, it's not going to happen, bro. It's not going to happen. But I was in better shape than I've been in years because like I was doing these alternative, almost like caveman type workouts and shit. Like I pick up heavy shit, put it here. Like I was doing that. You know what I'm saying? So it was different. Right. And it's funny enough. So it's yeah. like quick story. So I met Makai through King Batch. I was right. using a film in Canada and no yeah. lie. So I remember like, he's like, yo, we're going to link up with my boy Makad. So we go out and I see this six foot eight fucking, you know, rock <laughs> solid Hulk figure. And I'm like, yo, we got security. I'm like, I'm about to start a fight for sure. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, he's an actor. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. You know, funny no, enough, though, funny enough, though, it's like that day, you know, we were in there and it's like every girl was sort of just coming to us. If you remember, there was this one group of guys that didn't quite like it. And I was like, I feel like I should start a fight. I got six, eight over here, you know, but thank God nothing happened. There, there, hey, uh, there's something <laughs> empowering about walking around when you light skin. You got three big brothers sitting back, standing behind you. All of a sudden, your chest is coming out a little bit more. And you're talking a lot of stuff. And the dudes in the back are like, hey, I mean, listen, you might want to take that down a little bit. <laughs> hey, 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 turn that light skin shit down for like, like go from like light skin 11 to like a light skin seven. Light skin quick, seven. Bro, oh my I mean, God. I need you to tell you. Yeah, you full light skin right now. I need you to light <laughs> hey, Kai, thank you for joining us, my brother. And I don't want to hold pleasure, you bro. too long. You know, I know you're busy. No, 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 no. Doug, you're a friend of mine. We're, we're here. I want to try to get into everything more. Like, you know, obviously I want to talk about what you have going on, your career, but mm. I also want to dive into some of the social issues because you're very, very active there. and You're very passionate there. So I definitely want to get to that. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit. About, so you're from Texas, right? What was your introduction uh, into the entertainment business, being from, from Texas? Man, I think the same as probably a lot of other people. Like, I just, I watched TV and I watched movies and I loved what I saw. And the first thing that I, I was probably nine and 10 years old and I saw Eddie Murphy Raw and Delirious. I would watch Raw one day and I would watch Delirious the next day. Every single day for maybe two years. It was crazy. It was like mental. And I remember one time my mom got home and I started reciting delirious to her and she was so mad, but I was so funny. Right. I was so fu I was doing an Eddie Murphy impression so well. She was like, she started crying laughing. I was like, Oh, I'm good. This is, this is good. I became right. a class clown, but I got kind of like, I was actually a great, great student at the same time. So I kind of knew this like fine line of walk, you know, class clown, make the teacher laugh too, but then also do the work. And uh, so I was, it was very political in that. <laughs> but by the time I got to be 17, I was, I saw Usual Suspects. Ah. And I go, okay, I want to do that. So how do I learn how to do that? And I saw the Brian Singer and went to USC Film School. So I was like, okay, I got to go to USC Film School. So that was that. That's dope, man. You know, I like that <laughs> you do have that versatility, which is hard. When I was in the representation game, and Dougie and I talk about this quite a bit. It was like, you know, you had Denzel, you had Will. And then Denzel and Will were in the game for a really long yeah. period of time. And so Hollywood was looking for who is that next guy? Like, who is that next that's going to bring this in, this usher, this new, young, Black, talented guys? And then you were in this group. And I love that you're breaking out because you're not allowing yourself to be in a certain box. You can do it all, whether it be comedy, whether it be action. You. At, you know, you're obviously in great shape, but, you know, it's hard to pull off an athlete in a film and it be considered accurate. 
you watch some yeah. guys like man because yeah. it's coordination and agility too right right so, like there's a difference right i love that you'll take that same approach and apply that to a dramatic role yeah absolutely well, thank you for saying that but like it's like for me it's been like i think the toughest thing about like especially when i was first coming up and i really kind of popped off in the game was like 2009 10-ish right like so like that's when true blood happened but if you look at like that report that just came out about how much money Hollywood is losing potentially from racial bias. Yeah, that's the McKinsey report. It just came out last week in Hollywood. Mc- report. The McKin- Sir, McKinsey and Company. The McKinsey yeah. report. Go ahead, brother. Losing about $10 billion a year. Mm-hmm. If you look at that report, study that report, I wasn't surprised myself, but I started flipping the report. I read the report report. Between 2008 and 2012 was the least amount of love that we got. It was the least amount of love that we got, right? In the last 20 years or so. And I remember coming out at that time, like, a lot of my team was like, oh, this is it. This is it. You know, we, we, we're going to do it. I remember going in for leads of studio movies and then sitting next to a rapper who shall remain unnamed who could barely speak English. And they would act like that there was a real choice happening between yeah. somebody who is yeah. dedicated years and years and years and years to a craft and it's somebody who had a hit song. Right. And so that was a difficult period. And if you're not going to quit in that period, you're, it just made me work harder. You know what I'm saying? So like there was that. And there was also like times when I've been in situations where I had to say no to a role because I didn't think it was a good look for our culture. Like I didn't think that it was good for me to be, I didn't want to add to the fray of the angry black man or the irredeemable sort of thug and blah, 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 because it was written from a certain perspective. And then I had to go in here and I had to go fight and change and all the kind of things to, to make sure that this person was looked at as a human being. And I did that a lot, way more than most people would understand. And I got tired of that. Got super tired of that. It's been a wonderful career, but it's also been a very a struggle in a lot of ways. But I think that, that struggle made me into a better actor, mm-hmm. made me into a much better actor, made me into somebody who understands the subtle nuances of politics of the game, of what you can bring to characters that the writer never intended. You know what I'm saying? Like, so like, there's a lot of that as well. That's really helped me. So I think, I appreciate you saying that because something I I came along to the hard way. Right. So So you went to SE film school. So tell us a little bit about when you were there. Like, how was it? Did you go from Texas to SE? Yeah. Okay. I went from Austin, Texas, USC film school. And August 25th, 1999, I landed at 2.25 p.m. Easy to remember a lot of twos and 25s in there. Right. So, <laughs> I, I just um, want to add, in 1999, I was getting ready to graduate middle school. Keep going. I just want to add that <laughs> nobody gives a shit. I had to so, do it. <laughs> <nobody, laughs> <my friend. laughs> Go ahead. I just want to add, in 1999, I was finally happy that I could understand that Prince song. <laughs> Black Don't Crack. I hit 40 last year. I don't look a day over 39. It's all good. No, you don't. You look amazing. Um, <laughs> you look great. Hey, you look great, brother. Yeah, right. Appreciate it. So. SC was great. I mean, like, I, I watched a bunch of movies that I would never have seen. And, like, I think a lot of those really influenced how I tell stories and particularly the development I'm doing now. I watched Kurosawa. I watched Truffaut. I watched Coppola. I watched Trip to the Moon. I watched The Great Train Robbery. I watched the first films ever made. I watched the worst films ever made. I watched the best films ever made. And I watched, on average, five to seven films a week for four years. Because of that, I have a great love for cinema, but I also understand that there's this greater arc that's happening 
with eras and movements, right? Every 20 to 30 years or so. And we're stepping into a new one. Star Wars kind of started, the original Star Wars started this thing called postmodernity, which is like the postmodern era of film. And that went from the mid 70s until like the late 90s, mid 90s ish. And then so then we had something else kind of start, which we don't have a name for it yet, but it's what really raised us in our adolescence. Well, not Dougie, because he was three. It's kind of what raised us in our adolescence and in our adulthood, our early adulthood for the last 20 or so years. And now we're, we're seeing something different, something new happen, which is really beautiful in the fact that like, you look at a movie like World Trade Center, Nicolas Cage, Michael Pena, Jim Caviezel. This is true. So I'm not saying anything offensive to anybody. Jim Caviezel is an incredible actor. However, the person that he was playing in real life, the character he was playing in real life was an African-American. The man was from Baltimore. He was a Marine who spoke to God, did like one or two TV interviews, and God told him to go to Ground Zero and told him exactly what people were in the rubble, moved the rubble, pulled them out. He saved over 10 lives, something like that, by doing that. And then Oliver Stone decided that he needed to be a white guy. And nobody saw anything wrong with that. I didn't even Nobody know there's anything wrong with that. I didn't even know that that character in real life. Right. Yeah, they get that all those details get dusted underneath the rug, you know. And, and yeah, they get they they get dusted underneath the rug because. But then I never forget. There's a, there's a director named Sheldon Candice. I think you know Sheldon, right? Mm-hmm. And Sheldon and I were in film school at the same time. And Sheldon raised his hand and goes to Oliver Stone because he here he is having a Q and A after the movie. We saw the movie, and Sheldon goes, "Excuse me, why did you feel the need to change the character from black to white?" And then Stone goes, well, it's because, you know, we were just hiring the best actor. He's like, and then I think, I'll never forget, Sheldon goes, well, would you hire Denzel Washington to play Napoleon? Wow. <laughs> yeah. How do you respond to that? Everybody kind of just, like, the, the whole, we're talking 2000, right? Yeah. 2000, well, I don't know. So half the audience was like, wow, wow, wow. You know, like, <laughs> oh, you, oh, you, you turn worried about black shit. Like, yeah. no. Nah, we just don't want to get whitewashed out of history, man. We're tired. We're tired of that. You know, so what's I, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's interesting because I remember when Wild Wild West came out, uh, there was mm-hmm. a lot of flack about Will taking on that that role because the TV show the guy was white. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's 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 right around the same time frame. I, I, you know? I never knew there was. Well, a lot of people didn't know that. Yeah, a lot of people didn't nobody, know that. Nobody, nobody gave a fuck. Yeah, nobody <laughs> cares. Like, first, and, 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 like first uh, of all, go McCoy. You're talking about Will Smith. You're talking about Will Smith. Right. Right. You got a problem with Will Smith playing somebody. You just got problems. hundred <laughs> percent. You just got problems. Okay, so well, no one's ever gonna make you happy because if you don't like Will Smith, you don't like yourself. That's just, that's, that's, just deep. that's just that's he's one of those guys. Will Smith, Oprah, you know, Chappelle, you don't like them, you just don't like yourself because they bring something out of you that, that you don't like, whatever. Hundred percent. But you like my thing is like, yes, a fictional character can be twisted any way that you want particularly particularly like i played james olsen right as a white guy and, and redheaded yeah. right and so every single character in 1940 was written white what you want us to do we're just like the tv show right now the, the, the lead in the original wasn't no black woman so right. it's just it's definitely not characters i do think you're right though about you know jim caviezel is playing a this is not a non-fictional character and he's playing basically a black dude. He's playing a brother who talks he's to God. A hero, yeah. right? And you know, it's you interesting know? that you say that. Sort of, I remember this because I was in New York, 
and around that time, if you remember the day after that tragic event on, you know, September 11th, there was this iconic. It was a Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, Scooby, you may remember this, but there was this iconic picture on the cover of all the magazines, newspapers in New York, New York Post, Daily News. And it was of three firemen raising the American flag and they were all white. And one of the things I vividly remember was all of the rhetoric around black people, once again, are being washed away from an iconic historic moment. Like they couldn't have one woman or one black person on the cover raising that flag. And it's like, I never thought about it until later as I sort of progressed. And, right. and, and I'm like, that's kind of true. But it's like, you don't want to make right. it seem like we're always complaining. But at the same time, it's like, give us a reason not to. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. 100%, bro. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. The thing is, though, comparatively, we barely complain. If you uh, look at what the MAGA crowd is complaining about, they're complaining about fictionalized issues. One third or half of the country is complaining about things that don't even exist. How much do you think they would complain about redlining if it happened to them? How much do you think that they would complain about imagery or negative imagery if it happened to them? Sure. Like, so like, it's almost as if, I get what you're saying, because like we get told, oh, you guys are too focused on, but that's like telling a woman she's too focused on feeling safe and secure in a workspace. That's like telling a woman she feels you're complaining too much about not getting enough credit for your work. Well, they don't. Both of those things are true. They don't feel safe and secure everywhere they go, and they don't get enough credit for their work. It's true. You want to change their mind? Change your mind. And so, like, when you're taking pictures of volunteer firefighter force or volunteer police force, and I mean volunteer as in, like, they're not drafted. Like, they, mm -hmm. they volunteer to have that job in the most racially diverse city in the world. Right. Or at least in North America. Right, right. You can't get one? Right. You can't get one? It's true. It's like we're constantly yeah, having cool. to remind yeah. them. We're always having to remind. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have to remind. Like yeah. every few years. Oh, yeah. The Academy realized, I guess we got to do it. Let's just put all the black people and give them all awards this year. You know, and then we're going to call it diversity, which really just means black. <laughs> it really seems like, you know, we want to go diverse. I feel, like, I, feel, I feel like diversity means oops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, we forgot about y'all. Oh, yeah. yeah, take a bunch of shit. Take a bunch of shit. <laughs> so, Makai, hold on. Because I want to I want to sort of reverse a little bit because I think we're, we're sort of, and I don't want to mess up the momentum because I like where the conversation yeah, 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 is going right yeah, now. Yeah, with, you, but you. I, I want to keep it the spotlight on you right now and, and your acting. So you go to you okay, go to USC okay. school, you go to film school, you, you're watching all right. the movies, et cetera, et cetera. Do you remember mm -hmm. what, your, what the first thing you went to audition for out here was? And what was that feeling like when you didn't get it, if you didn't get it, I don't want to assume. I got my first audition. Mm. So, and that's not to say that, that it was an easy road because it definitely was not an easy road. Oh, so you booked one. I, I didn't even have. Oh, we got to clap for that because that but, happens. Well, no, no, no. It's, 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 the story's crazy though. Like, He's like, I booked my first. Story's audition. actually kind of, the story's kind of crazy though. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to be there. I wasn't even supposed to be at the audition. I didn't have representation. I didn't have an appointment. I didn't have anything. I wasn't even supposed to be there. I wasn't even supposed to know about the audition. Like, I was not invited. <laughs> and it was a callback to a Richard Linklater movie. And I remember it wasn't even in, in L.A. It was in Austin. I was living in L.A., but I, was, I came back to Austin for the, the winter break. And I remember my brother and I went in and we auditioned for the movie. And, like, my brother went and auditioned. My brother came out, another guy got up to audition. I put my hand on his shoulder and I pushed him down. I go, wait your turn, bro. 
And I just kept walking. And I and my brother held, held the door open. <laughs> Debo the audition. Debo the audition, bro. I walked in. I closed the door. I locked it. I looked at Richard looked at I said, he goes, who are you? I go, I'm the other guy's brother. Listen, I know I'm not supposed to be here, but if you give me two minutes, obviously I know where the door is. I can show myself out if you don't like it. And he goes, you got five. And turned into about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then got a call back from that. And then another call back. And then I booked the lead of the movie. The movie never came out. It was an incredible movie, but like it never came out. Like Richard Linklater was, man, this dude's, he's still 15 years ahead of his time. Trust me. Like he's, he's, he's still a friend. This guy is still 15 years ahead of his time. He was trying to make a movie back in 2003 about the prison industrial complex and how it mixed in with high school football. Oh, in Texas. It's like kind of like the gridiron game but type thing. I haven't seen that, but it was about prison towns that basically, if you were raised in a prison town, you have, I think it's like a 10 to one chance to end up as a guard or a prisoner in the prison. Wow. 10 to 1. Because it's the infrastructure there, right? So, like, it was like these guys would go play high school football and then they'd be best friends and then, like, five, six years, seven years later, one's on one side of the bars, the other one's on the other side of the bars. So the movie was unbelievable. It was fantastic. Terrence Mouth, like, produced it. Sony Pictures Classics doing it when they were still around. Mm. It never saw the light of day. And I had a couple of those, but that was my first audition. And, that's that's um, crazy how that, that happened. So, so you didn't have representation at the time, right? I didn't have a car either. I, I used to walk to the closest agency twice a week, and I would do monologues for the receptionist. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Finally, they were like, okay, we'll let you see an agent because you're fucking getting on my nerves. <laughs> that's interesting because like, so, so basically you booked this Richard Linklater movie, even though it never sees the light of day. There's buzz at that point, right? Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that that's probably when you got yeah representation because they're like yo there's this guy he just booked yep. the lead you know exactly exactly that's funny how it worked you took your well, job how, how, how it's hard to kick a guy that's your height your height and size out of a room you know and then the fact you were good it's just like yeah yeah i mean like you know i was a pretty skinny kid but i definitely had i don't know where my confidence came from it came from beyond me like i i just shouldn't have had that like i shouldn't right. have had that i think it was being naive it was being just like oh i've seen this on tv i can do this and the fact of the matter is i could on a certain level but like i needed to get a lot better and i needed to understand the craft and home my craft and that's what i did i took all the money i made from that movie i went to the acting conservatories i, I got acting coaches like i really put in the work because i didn't book shit else after that I, it was just like a fluke i was just, i just happened to be ready for that shit at that time and so like I'll go on for other stuff like, oh, I booked lead in the movie. They're like, well, you suck the fuck out of here. I'm like, huh? <laughs> like, you're that pretty boy shit. Get the fuck out of here. I always, I always have this face like, <laughs> <laughs> I had the constant James Dean plastered. What people don't know is James Dean died at 24. Like, you know, he might not be the same actor at 40. He might not be the same actor at 50. You know what I'm saying? So, like, Everybody goes, oh, I'm going to do that. Like, you can't do that because they ain't making that movie. <laughs> right. 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 So, so no, did you ever, what were some of the, the struggles you dealt with? Because if you remember, like, you know, because of your stature and your size, right at that time, it was hard mm. for guys. Because remember, when The Rock first made the transition from mm -hmm. WWE to acting, they didn't quite know where to put him. They didn't know what to do with him. They didn't know what to do with him. Right, yeah. because you had Arnold Schwarzenegger, you had the John Claude Van Dams, you had the Bruce, you had those guys, but they still were like they weren't as tall as you guys, right? So it's just, did you find struggles with that when going out for roles? 
Yes. I found that my first representation was like, say you're shorter. Say you weigh less than you do. Like, why? Because see, everybody's small in Hollywood. Just, just do it. Just do it. And I would do it all the time. And I would try to stand. And I would I'd find myself hunching my shoulders and standing with wide legs and shit like that. And I was like, I got to a certain place in my career where I was like, I am who I am. I'm as tall as I am. I'm as big as I am. I'm too black for that role. I'm not black enough in your eyes for that role. I'm da 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 whatever. I'm not going to try to make myself into something. Because also, you can't really see if you're progressing as an actor if you keep trying to be what other people want you to be, right? There's no sort of home base. There's nothing to gauge your work upon, right? So, like, if you're like, I'm going to go over here try to give them what they want on this side and i'm gonna go over here and try to give them what they want on this side well who are you what are you bringing to the table other than imitating what you think somebody else wants you are told to imitate a smaller stature you are told to imitate a shorter stature you are told told to imitate what people want and then eventually you get far enough in the game and you book enough stuff where you go like they don't know what they want they have an idea of who their character is the writer has an idea of who he or she wrote the director has an idea of who he or she wants to see. But what I found is, is that the proprietorship goes to whoever read that role and whoever read that script the most recently. Mm-hmm. Meaning, Dougie, you wrote a script and you read it 60 times because you wrote it, right? You had to do rewrites, then and then so on and so forth. And then you attach a director and that director, she reads it 30 times and she makes notes and blah, 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 blah. And now you're auditioning actors. Well, if I read it a hundred times, and I did that last week, it's mine now. Whatever idea you may have had in your head, I may meet that idea or I may exceed that idea. I'm not going below that idea because I read it the most, the most recently, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a piece. So like once you once that art is created, it's out there in the world. And before an audience gets a hold of it, before an editor gets a hold of it, before the director even gets a hold of it, on set as an actor you can actually inform the art from the ground floor from the ground process if you're willing to read it a hundred times to read it 50 times no one else is doing that right so like the stuff that i really really wanted i really really gone out for and really shot my shot i did that i read it a hundred times 200 times like to the point where like it was my life for two weeks and i have no guarantee that i'm gonna get it but if you do that it's yours so it seems like you like to take ownership. So, like, even with the audition, you took the, you just took it. And then you take a script and you just take it, you know? And so it's, it becomes you yeah. so that you got that confidence. It's like, I know it better than you probably even think that you know it, man. Correct? Well, I, I wouldn't say better. I'd say differently. I know it differently than someone else. Because we all bring our own, as an actor or as any artist, even a writer or director, whatever the case is, any artist, anybody who's, who's putting out any form of art, right? They're bringing their entire life experience to it, hopefully, if they're doing it right. So it's not that it's better or worse, or I know this better, I know this better. I know it differently than you. And you may not have been able to see it this way because I put 35 more hours into it than you did, right? It's just a mathematical equation, but I'd like to speak on the proprietorship of it. I would say that doing that gives you proprietorship of yourself and proprietorship of the character's choices. I don't think ideas can be owned. I don't think thoughts can be owned. I think that we have a collective consciousness and a collective space where we can go to a conscious level of existence and we can all share these ideas, right? That's why like when somebody has an idea, you go, oh, other people had that idea too. Because that 
consciousness glass ceiling was broken and those ideas came filtering in to our conscious awareness. But I don't think a thought is mine. Like I might have a thought and the director had the exact same thought. Can't say it's my thought. I might have a thought about the character and I'm like, I didn't read that in the character, but the, the writer intended. I can be like, oh, that's mine. Like, no, that was, that's ours, right? I may have like this sort of inkling of this and like, oh, wow. And then all of a sudden another actor brings it out of you and like, oh, well, damn, that was kind of there. So it's like, I take proprietorship of my choices. I take proprietorship of who I am as an artist and as a person, but the thoughts that come into my head, they, I don't think thoughts can be owned. I don't think they can be owned. Let me ask you this, because just because we're on this subject and it's something Joe Biden and I speak about quite a bit, because you talk about creativity and can't put ownership on, on creativity and ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel in our community, there is a glass ceiling of how creative and imaginative we allow our minds to be compared to our counterparts? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. That's the perfect example of why I don't think that we should look at thoughts as something that we can own. Because sometimes those thoughts hold us back. There's, there's, this, uh, there's a lot of pressure, I think, put onto Black storytellers to tell Black stories. But we don't apply that same pressure to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. We don't say, are you gay? You gotta tell a gay story. We don't say, we don't tell somebody of German heritage. Well, you gotta tell a German story. You gotta tell a World War II story. We don't tell somebody of Native American heritage that they have to like. Or, so like, I think that we have a responsibility within our own community to uplift good stories, just plain good stories that happen to have diversity in them because we're telling them. So like, for instance, you singing rock music is different than the guy from Seattle singing rock music because you're you. That doesn't mean if you're good at rock music because you're Black, I need you to rap. That means that I'm going to take the wholeness and the fullness of who you are as Dougie Cash and go, I want to hear that rock song, right? So I think that we got to start telling the sci-fi stories, not just about Black ancestry, but about Black futures. We got to start telling stories about the five, where's our 500 days of summer, where it's just like two Black people falling in love and like, they just happen to be black, but we don't have to get into all the blackness. The, the black of their black, black, black of their black, 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 yeah. black. We ain't, we ain't got to do all that, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that. I'm just saying that to answer your question, I think that we are who we think we are. And we are only limited by the thought processes that we interact with. And I think that if we think we're Spielbergs and we think we're Spike Lee's and we think we're this, like Spike Lee doesn't always tell a black story. He tells stories. And sometimes they got black people. I love that. Carl Franklin does that. We have our example of people who do that, you know? And not to get, don't get me wrong, we need to tell Judas and the Black Messiah story. We need to tell Malcolm X's story. We need to tell Paul Robeson's story. We need to tell, we need to basically respectfully go dig up the graves of all these stories that we had that have not been told yet, right? From Black ancestry, 100%, 100%. But that's not all we have. We also have to be. Would you say there's a not to interject, but would you say there's a correlation? Because remember in the in the McKenzie report, would you say there's a one of the things that I read, and it's actually happening right now. I'm not going to get into it. It's happening on a project I have right now, where the budget is one thing, and they're like, "Eh, if it's under this, we'll do it, right? Do you think there's a correlation between black stories and the budgets that we're getting to tell these stories? I think that there's a projection. That is attached. Yes. 
when you tell a black a black ancestral story, right? Automatically, there's a certain group of people that go, "Oh shit, I'm not gonna be the leader of this. I'm gonna be the villain. I'm gonna feel guilty. This is gonna be hard to watch. This is important work, but it's necessary." You know, like there's all these things that come attached to it when you start doing that. However, you look at something like Lovecraft Country. That's just a good fucking story. That's just a good story. Mm-hmm. And there's some black people in it. And so the, I think we have to get out of the headspace of the projection of selling it certain ways, right? Like if you're going to tell a story about an African chief in 1455 AD that has this beautiful love story and like it's about him coming to age as a chief in his, in his own village. And all of a sudden there's these alien invaders called the Portuguese. Are you going to, Say, well, it's a slave story. Like, no, it's a coming of age story about this king who da, 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 da. and then his enemies come in, these foreign people come in, da, 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 so on and so forth. There's a way to sell it, right? There's a way to sell it where I think people are because here's the thing, here's my problem. We have strayed away from stories like 1804, Haiti. We strayed away from the grandchildren of kidnapped hostages overthrowing the most powerful government on the planet right. because the heroes look like this. We, st- we completely ignored it. Yeah, but there's we completely a, ignored. You right? can have 300. Where's our 300? Also, it's not even ours. 300's not anybody's. Mm. 300's between Sparta and Persia. Sparta's not America. Right. As a matter of fact, do you know what a Spartan looked like? Actually, the no. motherfuckers look okay. like <laughs> no, they look. They, they look more like they. They were along. I mean, yep, they were the region of the era they were at, and the Mediterranean level. Yeah, you're right. Wow. So that movie was actually brown people fighting brown people, but somehow we were like, okay, let's put a bunch of Scottish and British and Irish people on one side, and put brown people on the other side, while this country, while the United States of America, is fighting brown countries. And let's say that we're the Spartans in this one. Why? Why did we do that? We're going back thousands of years to tell stories that got nothing to do with us. Right. <laughs> Rather than going back 100 years, 200 years to tell stories that could uplift all of us about liberty and justice and freedom. And it's just like, I don't want to see a motherfucker with dreadlocks win. What are you talking about? That's you. So like, I think we're getting past that. I'm about to go on a tangent. So hopefully it makes sense. I love changes, by the way. I love changes. I'm hoping it makes sense. And this is just my opinion. It feels like white people, like they're trying to survive their positioning in this country. Right. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. It also feels like, and this is just me, they look at all black people as a monolith. And I think because of the impact and the impact of, of hip hop culture, some of the negative aspects, because there's a lot of hip hop culture that is really good. But because of the invasion into mainstream America and just global of some of the negative aspects of hip hop culture, I think white people or the gatekeepers are trying to keep that away from taking over these powerful posts that have the authority to make things happen. So they're trying to fight against that in an undertone mm. sort of way. So they'll give a little bit but they'll never actually fully let us in, if that makes any sense. The negative aspects Um, of hip-hop culture and the popularity of it all, I feel like that part of it is why they look at all Black people the same, which is why they say we can only make these kind of movies at these price points and blah, 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 because that's all you guys are. 
because they're just struggling for dear life to hold on to sort of their positioning. I think you're hitting the nail on the head in one regard, and then I respectfully disagree with you in another regard. Okay. I think it's chicken and egg, right? I think that the hip hop culture is a response. The hip hop culture is in response to being bastardized. The love that America has withheld from us has caused us to be aggressive, caused us to be tougher, thicker skin, all these different things that may be hard to understand for cultures who have not been through our experience. I will say that I find, and not that you said this, I find nothing wrong with white people trying to hold on to what they know. I find something wrong with not addressing the sociological and the political agenda of whiteness, which is keeping people whose proximity to your comfort away from positions of power, meaning you don't want a brother with a neck tattoo being the mayor. He can be your barber, he can be your mechanic, he can work, blah, 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 blah. But if you are supporting the political and sociological agenda of whiteness, then nah. I'll hire him, who's who looks, you guys are the same race, you're both black, I'll hire him, but he looks great in a suit. I can dress him up and, you know, and, and tout my diversity. But Ray Ray? Oh no, Ray Ray scares me. Ray Ray is not adhering to the, the political agenda of whiteness, which is a racial hierarchy situation. So Candace Owens is a perfect example of how you don't have to be white to support the political agenda of whiteness, right? You, you can, it's not even about a race. It's not even about my color, your color. It's not about anybody's color. It's about the political and sociological and economic agenda Mm-hmm. of whiteness, which is keeping a racial hierarchy in place, which yep. is giving Dougie Cash less money to make a movie because it's about black shit. Did you put that through your algorithm? Because a lot of the black movies, they outperform all your numbers. So the political agenda of whiteness says, we're not going to make your movie for 19 million, we're going to make it for 11. And that's the political agenda. you know. And so like, right. I, I don't agree with that. Nah, these, this is different. Okay. I do like shoes. Though. You <laughs> like shoes? Yeah, those yeah, shoes yeah, are yeah. toys. So I'm on my phone. Sorry. What? Are, okay. It's interesting because you did five years of Supergirl. I'm a huge nerd. And oh, you, those are action figures. Yeah, 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 yeah. My that's, G. Wow, that's, wow, wow. That's a whole wow. different thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you were on Supergirl. More expensive, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is true. It's more expensive to have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not... Socially as accepted as people. <laughs> but I love You know it. what, though? I mean, there's a really big dating pool within the Comic-Con world that you, you can have at it. So you were on Supergirl for five years, but I think it's interesting correlation to what we were just talking about. Because right. the character of Jimmy Olsen is the little, like you said, right, red-headed photographer that rolled around mm-hmm. with Clark Kent and Lois Lane when they were on their adventures. And he's always, he's the right. one that's, Superman, we need help. We need help. We need help. And then... Superman right, right. save the day. That's a huge cry from you, you know, in terms of the casting choice. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Was that something that was, okay, we are deciding now that we're doing the Supergirl show, we're going to go diverse with the character of Jimmy Olsen? Or was it something that you brought that was so different? It's like, you know what? We're flipping Jimmy Olsen into being this. You know, can you tell us a little bit about how that, that came about? When I first went out for Supergirl, it was between me and a white guy. I don't think that they were trying to like, trying to go diverse or they were trying, like they weren't looking, 
all praises to Greg Berlanti and Peter Roth. The God. The Hold on. That Clap for Greg Berlanti. Yeah. TV God. I mean, like, all praises. All praises to Greg Berlanti. All praises to Peter Roth. These are two men who understand that the world is bigger than what than how we grew up and how they grew up. That television is bigger than how they grew up and how we grew up. And that things are changing and that they're not afraid to take chances, even if people are going to hate on those chances or you might alienate a certain part of your audience. They've made the calculation, fuck that audience. We don't want that audience. And that's a big deal. When you, that, I mean, that's, those are numbers. That's money, right? They're like, okay, cool. We'll take the hit if it's a hit at all. It seems like a hit, right? Because TV, like, let's make everybody happy. Let's make everybody happy. Let's make middle America happy. Let's make Florida happy. Let's make blah, 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 happy. Let's make the Trump supporters happy. Let's make the Biden support. Let's make everybody happy. And that's what they're trying to do with, t- with TV. But when you see a head of a television studio in Peter Roth, or you see a giant in the production pods like Greg Berlanti go, we're just going to hire the best actor. That's what Greg told me. He was like, look, you know, and Peter told me too. He's like, look, you were the best actor. You brought something that nobody else brought. And so like, because I was surprised that they hired. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. All right. I'm actually not Jimmy Olsen. I'm James Olsen. Sorry, gotcha. We made a very strong distinction about that early on. They go, they go, if we wanted Jimmy Olsen, we wouldn't have hired you. <laughs> we want James Olsen. We want a, a guy who, we want a man. We want a guy who's grown up. We want a guy who's a hero himself. He bring he's not just calling Superman every time he gets in trouble. Right. You know, he's kind of a mentor and a springboard of information and support to Supergirl herself and a love interest. Right. And so, like, you know, you can have a Jimmy, but we didn't have a Jimmy, we had a James. Right. And what I can say mm-hmm. is Greg Berlanti, Susan Rovner, and Peter Roth, they deserve all the credit in the world for taking a look at. 70-year-old characters, 80-year-old characters and saying this is the canon. But life was pretty monochromatic back then. You only saw a Black person if they were the elevator. They were in the elevator, like elevator operator, or they were the porter grabbing your bags, or they were this, or they were this, or they were this, or so on and so forth. They were essential workers. So they weren't heroes. They weren't even sidekicks. Like they weren't, we, we were kept out of everything. Like people lived a monochromatic existence back then. And all praises due to your question, all praises due to Greg Berlanti, Susan Rovner, Peter Roth, because they look beyond that shit and they go, not having it. And that's what it is. So it's like, when we have more people who think like that, when we have studio heads who think like that, we have producers and writers who think like that, we have studio executives who think like that, we're definitely in a good place. Yeah, well, that's a testament to you, though, because not only are you taking that on, you've proven that that risk was worth it and you're creating a certain power to that character who was just a simple sidekick before and now he's somebody of Uh some weight and understand that because that's a huge risk you know and and they took it and it paid off Mm -hmm. more power to you man for for was there backlash from the the thank you superhero fandom always backlash there is but you don't have to worry about that with fans because they're still going to watch it i learned a long time ago not to read reviews because if you believe the positive ones you got to believe the negative ones no matter how people feel about what, what's happening, it's happening. There's going to be people who hate on the Mars rover mission. There's going to be people who don't want to accept Biden's election. It'll happen. <laughs> there's going to be people who don't want to accept the royal family's racist. But Megan said what she said. It's like, yes, I've read some of it. 
there was some really disgusting, really, really disgusting things that were said. I actually had death threats going to Comic-Con, all based on race, all based on race. I don't think my blackness plays into whether I would look at Twitter or not. I just don't, I don't look at it. Like I use Twitter like a bathroom stall. I write the shit and I walk off, basically. That's, that's all it is. It's a bathroom stall. Do you ever read the, the comment that somebody wrote under the bathroom stall? <laughs> like, nah, like, I don't read the second comment. Fuck the fuck out of here. Like, the first comment is cool. But like, so yeah, there was that there. But at the same time, like, racism is so pervasive that I tend to stay out of the spaces where I know it's going to be. Because I know it's going to smack me in the face when I'm not expecting it. So why am I going to go doom scroll? Why am I going to go look for this shit? I'm not going to go look for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's going to be in places it shouldn't be anyway. I'm not going to go to the places where I know where it is. You know, so like that doesn't make sense to me. You also did Desperate Housewives for a few episodes. How was that? No, no, no. That was a whole small fee. Don't, 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 don't. Don't take that picture. I, I was a whole season, my friend. I was a whole season. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Oh, man. <laughs> so, Desperate Housewives, I got the job of Desperate Housewives. I'd already shot Glory Road, which was like my first big studio thing, whatever the case was. And then, like, I remember I got Desperate Housewives. I was 20, 25 years old. I was your age, Dougie. I like that. Thank so, you. So, you don't look a day over 27. I remember I got the role and I was beside myself, I was screaming, I was like, the whole thing, because like, Desperate Housewives, I got on, end of the first season, signed on to the whole second season. And I remember, it was already a huge success, it was an international phenomenon. So, you gotta understand, like, I was washing storefront windows the summer of 2004. I was literally waking up at four o'clock in the morning. I was driving around Rodeo Drive, Santa Monica Boulevard, and different places in Hollywood, Sunset Plaza. And we had these stores. I'll tell you a really crazy story, actually. This is how fast Hollywood can affect your life. I was on Rodeo Drive. I'm not going to say the name of the brand because I think those people still work there. And I was washing the storefront window of this designer brand. I'll never forget. The dude would always come over to me and he would try to make me feel like shit because I had this window washing uniform on. I was washing windows and like I was like doing my squeegee thing and the whole thing. And we had, you know, we were supposed to be there. We had contracts, the whole thing. I never forget. He goes, Don't get in your nasty dishwater or your window washer water all over our expensive clothes and you can't fucking afford. I was like, Man, wow. That's how it is, right? That's how it is. Okay, cool. Wow. Okay. And so, like, and I was very careful. I was, you know, he just wanted to talk shit to somebody. So that was summer 2004. Late summer 2004, I got Glory Road, went off for six months to go shoot that movie. January, February 05, I got Housewives. Do you know I went back to that store to get fitted for the SAG Awards by the same people who told me not to spill any dishwater on their fucking clothes? Did you remind them? Better than that. Okay. You, you brought dishwater. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, but you know what happened? <laughs> this is a true story. I was in the store. I'm getting fitted. They're bringing me, they're asking for one champagne. Asking, they're bringing me sparkling water. They're bringing me this, whatever, whatever. I'm sitting here getting fitted. I'm nominated with the cast, right? The whole thing. Oh, shit. Sorry. Not so good. I had a thing pop up. By the way, this is a um, nomination for the same award. Just an FYI, because you did it for Glory, Glory also. Oh, no, no. True Blood. No, 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 no. no. True Blood. This was the first time and the only time we won. Ah! So, 
<laughs> Let's go. Before I have my little friend over here. There we go. Um, <laughs> hold on, hold that up. I'm going to make this the cover to the episode. Hold, hold that thing up. Hold on. There you go. You got to make the light skin face you talked about before. Remember talking about? <laughs> I don't even remember doing it. <laughs> so me and my friend over here, before I got that friend, I was getting fitted in the clothing store. This was the clothing store that I used to wash windows at the summer before, six, seven months before. I'm there seven months later. I'm getting fitted for this award show. The people don't remember me, especially the guy who's really mean to me. I see the new guy who has my old job washing windows. And I just start looking like, damn, life can change like that, right? And guess what? I saw that dude be super mean to him. So I walk over and I go, thinking about this tire, this tire, whatever. I go, da, 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 da. so I'm talking to other people. I walk over to the guy, I go, by the way, you should always be nice to everybody, especially these guys. You never know if you're going to be fitting them one day. And what was his response? And I stood there and he was like, and didn't know what to say, stayed away from me the rest of the time. The, the two women who were there were like, almost like they were apologetic. Like they didn't know what to say because they recognized me. They were always cool. The women had always been cool. It was the guy who was an asshole. And I remember he turned red. He, I think he left, came back. I was still there. I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey, go give me another refill, man. I'll take some, I'll take some more sparkling water. I'll take some more. <laughs> I want him to bring it. I'm not done. You know? I'm not done getting dressed yet. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> and the best thing would have been like, if he's like, I don't want nothing. Thank you. And just walked out. You know? That's Hollywood, man. Like, your life can change like that. Your life can change in one phone call. Your life can change. I was literally washing those windows seven months before I got that job. And I guess it must have been about nine, ten months in all, like, where this whole thing happened, right? That's how Desperate Housewives changed my life. And one of the things that you said and you hit on is one of my fundamental problems with this town, right? It's like a lot of people say that Hollywood is so fake. It has this stigma and perception. Hollywood, Hollywood is not fake. The vast majority of people who are from here are actually grounded and cool. Mm-hmm. It's the people who yeah. come here with an agenda who deal with you out of necessity, right? It's like like the, a lot of people who come here, I don't want to say they're quote unquote fake. People deal with each other out of necessity. So if you're here to be an actor, a model, whatever it is you're trying to do, right. you don't want to interact right. with someone who can't help facilitate or push you yeah. in that direction, right? So people sort of perpetuate this attitude and this thing like and they discount you as not being shit because that's right, right me on the other hand as i've gotten older right because when i first got here i was out here i was in the, always in the mix i'm still in the mix i stay home i stay out the way because one of the things i realized early on is people deal with you stay home, bro. when they know you can do something he stays home because it's covid because I don't believe any of that yeah <laughs> <laughs> I know Dougie. I know Dougie. I know yeah, Dougie. Yeah, <laughs> but Cod is one of the real ones. You know what I'm saying? It's like Cod never hit me up like, yo, what y'all got going on? But never. But I recently hit him because whenever yeah. we have something, he's one of the first people I think of. Like, yo, I got something for you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I appreciate that, brother. That Thank I know you, man. I deal that. with me because of what I do or how I can. And it's, I never call them out on it. I just sort of back away and do my own thing because I don't care about, I don't have yeah, football yeah. hair. I don't care about who you are. And I think that makes people uncomfortable too when you just don't give a, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yes, and, it does. Yes, it does. They, don't, they don't have power. I, I don't care who you are. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't know what to do with that. I would come to the defense of people in Hollywood a little more only because 
I was there for such a long, I left LA partly because of the, the culture. I don't, I don't really like the culture. I'm in New York now. I would say that it's not even really their fault. They're acting out of fear. They're acting out of fear and they're acting out of, of lack and want and 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 they're in a they're in a perpetual state of want. A lot of people come to LA with wanting to be accepted. A lot of people come to LA with wanting to be loved or wanting to be appreciated or wanting wanting to be recognized for what they're doing. So they kind of approach a lot of situations like, well, how do I use the 18 hours or the 16 hours that I'm awake that day to progress my goal? Rather than just try to be the best fucking person you can be. Mm-hmm. as talented as you can possibly be, as strategic as you can possibly be, and then those things will fall into place. When somebody's operating out of fear, you call them fake because they're being fake with themselves. Right? When somebody's operating from a position of knowingness or, or enoughness or whatever you want to call that, there's not that scarcity syndrome mentality that they have. Mm-hmm. They're just there and they're just being the best fucking version of themselves that they can be. And like that is attractive. That's attractive to other people who are doing that, right? So... I would say that, like, I don't think people are fake. I think they're just afraid. You know, I think I think they're afraid. You know, I don't think people are fake. They are fake people. Don't get it twisted. But I think everything. Oh, yeah. you said, everything you said, but vast majority is everything you said. And they, people just want to deal with people out of necessity. You got people that smile. This is my friend. Ain't your friend, but you know, Fifty said it. In his industry, yeah. people ain't friends. They know how to pretend. Let me ask you this. So I want to transition yeah. to social justice. So. You know, a lot of people don't know. So this podcast was actually started because of, if you remember the Zooms right. I was doing where I had people like you, other actors and directors mm-hmm. and curators. I started hosting a series of Zoom conferences mm-hmm. after the murder of George Floyd. They were so helpful, bro. They were so helpful. Thank you for doing that. They and, were, they, and, honestly, they were, they were really, really helpful. Thank you for donate, giving your time to all of them. What I saw was what was meant to sort of be... 30, 40 minute Zooms turn into two, three hours at a time. Oh, yeah. Man. Here. And I remember I told you, and then, you know, Nori, Nori has a, a podcast called Drink Chance with DJ EFN, and, and I admire Nori and what he's doing and all that. So I always had an interest, but I was like, God, is this my call? And it was COVID, stuck at home. And that's sort of when we launched, we might need counseling. But I want to talk to mm. you about you're very insightful. You're very analytical. You're very artsy, but you're very aware and social and, and conscious, brother. And I know you're passionate about this. Thank so you. I know how you felt about the George Floyd murder. What did that spark within you when you started seeing, you know, sort of the shift in society as people now started speaking up against racism? And I'm talking about like it was probably the most diverse we've ever seen. And you got really active, especially on social. You were doing things every day and posting every day. What did that murder of George Floyd sort of ignite within you? A sense of clarity that that enough is enough. A sense of clarity that America is, it's not unique in its degradation of humanity. It's not unique in its mistreatment of its own people, but it's unique in the fact that it refuses to take a look at it. It's unique in the, its denial. It's u- unique in the sugarcoating of a genocide. It's unique in that. and. I feel like I got to a place where there was a knock on the door for a long time, at least for me. My ancestors have been knocking on the door of my consciousness for a long time. And they kept saying something along the lines of, we are here, like we're here. And what they meant for me in particular was, we never left you. You guys need us. And we know that you need us. So we know that we're going to, and we're never going to leave you the same way that the other ancestors leave because the strength has to be multidimensional. The strength has to be 
on all these different energetic levels. Like this is not something that we're going to solve in our generation. Sad as that that is to admit, but there was something that I think that's in all of our DNA that's programmed in all of our DNA. This human equity consciousness that we had for thousands of years before the Portuguese and the Catholic Church and the English came and took that from us. And I think there's a George Floyd in succession with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, those three things happening back to back to back, right? I think was enough for people who don't normally pay attention to this at all, don't normally pay attention to the strife of the African-American. It made them realize that there is something that they cannot ignore and that easy patriotism or ignoring the plight of the African-American is no longer the moral choice and that they had to make a decision on either side. They had to either listen to us and support what we're saying, at least with paying attention, or they had to deny, 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 deny. That's becoming more and more apparent as time goes on, right? You're either becoming more anti-racist or you're becoming more racist. And I think that's a beautiful place to be. So for me, it was clarity. It was a wake-up call. It was like the alarm clock went off and I couldn't hit snooze this time. I couldn't hit snooze this time. I was just like, I follow Elon Musk. I consider myself a futurist. I consider myself somebody who's concerned with the course of human evolution, not just in a historical aspect, but where are we headed? So first of all, we're colonizing Mars in 2024. Wrong word, colonizing. Wrong word, wrong mind state. Wrong way to look at shit. Mm-hmm. Wrong way. Seeding, cool. <laughs> Expanding to, it's cool. Are we going to are we going to work with the land and and seed that land and pregnant that land and work with it and cultivate? Cool. Or are we going to rob it and strip it and destroy it like we've done everything else with, colon, with colonization? So in 2024, we're seeding Mars. My question to all of humanity, after I watched this disgusting vile human being kneel on George's neck for damn near nine minutes. My question to humanity at that point and now is, are we going to export racism and sexism, racial oppression and violence to Mars? Are we going to be lynching people on Mars in 2050? Are my grandkids going to be unwelcome on two planets? Do I have to explain that to them? Do I have to explain 15th century Portuguese politics to them to tell them why that they can't get a good job on Mars? Are we going to be interstellar assholes? Where do we want the bullshit to stop? Shouldn't the barrier of our planet be a good place for that to stop? For an old amount of the industrialization of commerce to push forward our consciousness, shouldn't that stop at the border of our fucking planet? So I think we've just gotten to a place where it's just too big not to talk about. It's, it's, we're headed too far into the future already. We're in the future. We're seeding Mars in three years. And we don't even have health care. We're seeding Mars in three years. And we're having discussions whether our lives matter. Get the fuck out of here. Stop. You cannot do both. One is the other. So like, there's this intertwining of moving forward is repairing the past. Moving forward is reformation for what has happened, right? So like, for me, I'm like, if anybody speaks out against reparations, I feel like benefit of the doubt, I just feel like that person doesn't know enough about the historical aspects of what has led us up to this situation. And that I feel like if that person ever did get informed, then they would change their idea to, do we need reparations to how do we implement them 
effectively and quickly because that is where we're at. We cannot start colonizing new planets with 15th century ideas. That's how you start a bad sci-fi novel off. Yeah, I don't think we want those problems. <laughs> no, we don't. We, come on, man. We, we know. We know. Yeah, we, we just don't. got here. So, like, yeah. <laughs> We're dealing with, like, racism, sexism, nuclear energy, climate crisis. It's a few other things, too. You're talking about the existential issues of human existence. You're talking about a base level existence sort of thing. Racial inequality, racial hierarchy can destroy a species. Mm-hmm. Why? Because call it something else. Disunity in a species can destroy it. Disunity within cells causes cancer. Disunity within a molecular structure causes things to break down, decompose. Anything that is disunified falls apart. We as people, we're a species. We are one human organism. We're a collective. And if we cannot be unified in that as we spread out, this is just going to get worse. That's powerful. It's like, as we continue to progress, are we going to take the toxic BS with us? Are we going to nip it at the butt here? I think that was powerful. Right. I mean, like, are women going to have to hold their keys on Mars? Let's discuss this because we're building the society. So like, okay, so what? Racism, check. Great. Cool. Let's continue that on. Let's redline Mars. Let's be great. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Um, sexism, great. Cool. Right. What checklist do you want? Motherfucker want? When is enough? When is it not one planet? Cool. How about three? You want three planets? How, what do you want? You want 475 years wasn't enough? Okay, 520? What do you want? What do you want? How much do you want? <laughs> like, so it's like, as my ancestors knocked on the door and said, we are here, it wasn't just about them. It's about us two. We are here. This is a GPS motherfucking location. They are telling us we are here. This is now. This is the time. Flip this shit up because we're not going to have another opportunity. All hands on deck. We are here. That's how I, I took it. I like how you took that because that's powerful and you're right. Now, somehow, somewhere, I, I want to try to transition to your music and then get into Mortal Kombat. People don't know that okay. you actually sing. You used to have a record deal. You have some dope singles out. You know, still do. So are you still doing I your just, Yeah, you know what the thing is? Like, I put out a song last year, early mm-hmm. last year, and then the pandemic happened and I was going to go record again and the pandemic happened and, and then BLM happened or... or you know what I believe, though? Let's do a mental archive right now. I think five, ten years from now, they're going to call the summer of 2020 the summer of change. Absolutely. I believe they're going to call it that. Absolutely. Yeah. I believe it's it sparked a human equity consciousness in people that, that changed things. And, and I really felt like I needed to have my attention focused on that. Yeah. We are here. I knew exactly where we were. I believe I, I know where we were and I know where, what that's going to mean. and. I had to take every ounce of my of my megaphone and use it not just for people who are mistreating each other right now or disunified now, but for 10 year olds, right? The 12 year olds. That's how this changes. Mm-hmm. The 55 year old, they, you know, they're stuck in their ways. The 40 year old probably probably stuck in their ways. The 30 year old, who knows? The 18 year old, we got a chance. We got a chance. 10 year old, we definitely got a chance. So like for me, that's what my job became late May of 2020 until about October 2020, November 2020. That's just what I focused on. I was kind of got broken out of that situation by like, not by music, but by mental health because I needed to just take a break from it. And also I went back to do reshoots on, on uh, Mortal Kombat. But yeah, 
there's more music coming. Music is storytelling. I'm a storyteller. It's another way to tell a story. I love music. I'm never going to stop making it. I don't care if I sell a, a billion, if I get a billion streams or I get 100,000 streams. I'm just going to do it. I love it. That's what that passion is. All right, good. Because I remember I bought his, uh, was it Tears Away? Tears Away Vibe Challenge when it first yeah. came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and King Vibes. Rain. I appreciate, I appreciate uh, the support. Now, hell yeah. So now let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, Mortal Kombat. And Joe Bar knows I'm not usually one. Like, I'm look, I watch everything, just the nature of the business we're in. I'm not necessarily so yep. gravitates towards, you know, video games. That's all the big shit. You know, Marvel, yeah. you know, I watch them, like some of them, but I don't necessarily gravitate. Yeah. This trailer came out. Not only did it break the record for views for an R-rated movie in a 24-hour period. <laughs> oh, it was a week. I forget. But... The shit looks dope. I remember I saw that and I hit you and I hit Joe. I'm like, yo, did you see this? I, I have to see this. Because there were two other Mortal Kombat films that were made and no disrespect to them. No disrespect. This one is just next level. I was like, this looks incredible. How did it feel to get cast as Jax? I cried. I'm, listen, you know me. I'm not, I'm not the cool guy. I'm not trying to be cool, whatever the case is. I am who I am. Mm-hmm. I fucking cried like a baby. I was in the gym. I have this thing where I do, like I told you, I said, like, when I really want to roll, I'll put 90 hours, I'll put 100 out, whatever the case is. Like, if I'm the person who read it the most, the most recently, I have a certain level of proprietorship over my choices, right, with that, right? And I remember when I, when I, I left, I left Supergirl before I had Mortal Kombat. I remember, yeah. Like, I know everybody was like, you left you left Supergirl for Mortal Kombat. I was like, nah, it kind of worked out that way, but I didn't have a plan. When I left Supergirl. I just knew that I think I had done what I was supposed to do there. All praises to Supergirl, all praises, to especially especially to Peter Roth, especially to Tweezer Rovner, especially to Greg Valenti. They really fucking killed that. And I, and I appreciate the opportunity. And it did so much for me. I learned so many lessons. And I was in London... And my boy, I think you know Mike Jackson. Yeah, you know you know Mike Jackson. I was at Mike's house. He was out there shooting Jingle Jangle. And I was hanging out and I was doing some work in London. And I got the audition for Mortal Kombat. And I was like, oh, I was like, yo, Jack. I was like, and and, and I call Mike Jackson Jax. I was like, Jax, I'm gonna get Jax. He's like, Jax, Mortal Kombat. I go, yeah. He goes, that's a big one. I go, yeah, but I left Supergirl to be an action star. So this is it. Trust me. And he's like, Okay. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 really. This is, this is going to be it. Watch, right. So I remember whatever I was doing, I just stopped doing it. And I just, I canceled dinners. I canceled trips. All I did for eight to 10 hours a day was study the seven pages of dialogue that I was given. And I read the script once a day. And I studied the dialogue eight to 10 hours a day, eight to 10 hours a day on seven pages. And so there's a moment in that, the reason I go into the process is because I want to help young actors. Like they always ask me, well, what can I do? Make it your life. Make it your life for five days, six days, seven days, fall in love, take ownership, do all these things. And then if you don't get it, so what? You don't get it. You still know what what you're made of. You still know what you're made of, right? They said no to the choices that you made. They said yes to someone else's choices. They said yes to someone else's position. They said yes to whatever. But you know what, you, what you're what you capable of. 
And so there was a time, maybe like the day before I started shooting, I go, oh, I got this. And then before I even auditioned, I was like, all right, this is mine. Because mm-hmm. I'd given it so much of my of my energy. And so we, I auditioned, did the whole thing. And then this okay. is why I'm saying that. I started working out that day. I started working out the day I turned the audition in. Because mm-hmm. I knew I had to gain like 40, 45 pounds. And so I started working. Like, you know how this works, right? Like the breakdown comes out. You know, people start going, oh, I'm going to get this role. I need this role. And then people are like, you know, negotiating and maneuvering and all this kind of stuff and throwing the weight around and blah, 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 blah. And then there's one guy who's who's going to get it. He doesn't know it yet. Or, you know, you don't know it yet. Whatever the case is. But that's months away. I started working out that day knowing I'm going to do everything in my power. Mm-hmm. So even if they call and go, hey, it's not going to go any further. Okay, cool. But at least I wouldn't be playing catch up. Right. So by the time they called me, I was in the gym. gym right? I gained 15 pounds. <laughs> yep. I was in the gym. I was, I was in the gym every day. I remember my manager called me and I, I had an eye injury that I got from a stunt from Supergirl. And he goes, yeah, so I just want, he's like, so we got good news and bad news. Oh, and he goes, we got good news. I go, tell me, I go, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, you know, like, tell me, tell me, tell me. He goes, we found you a new eye. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, man, fuck you, bro. <laughs> I was like, man, fuck you. I almost hung up there. Like, get the fuck out of here. Right? <laughs> and he goes, nah. He's like, you got Mortal Kombat. Wow. And I remember it was. I don't think like, it can be understated because, like, I'm a nine. You know, I was obviously, you know, we're almost the same age. I think you're right in between me and Dougie. So the impact of Mortal Kombat is huge. The two fighting games of the 90s were Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. Yes. And on top, yeah, those are the two games. And Mortal Kombat took the biggest risk because you got all the blood and, and crazy. Not everybody was allowed to play it, you know? So you had to, like, hide it and play it and right. stuff. And the only Black character... Was Jax. Is right. Jax. <laughs> That's right. it. Right. You know? And, right. and, oh, and so, like, this is huge, man. This is a big, big you, deal, man. I was in the gym, and I got the, and I, and he said that, and both my managers on the phone, they said that. And I thought, you know, maybe I didn't know how I was going to respond. But I literally, and I was out of breath and the whole thing, because I was, I was working hard. And I remember, like, I just fell to the ground and I just started crying. And I couldn't breathe. And they were like, you okay? You good? I was like, I think, oh, I think we lost them. I was like, no, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, are you okay? And I was like, it just hit me, man, because it was like, and I really still haven't celebrated it because I've, I've been working hard on, on developing stuff. But like, you know, Dougie would tell you like, I don't know your, your primary business, but I, I, that's why I keep referring to Dougie. Yeah, yeah, Dougie will tell you like, you come out there from Cairo fucking, you know, bumfuck Egypt, right? Like I'm from Austin, Texas. He's from New York. Da, 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 da. You get there and then, and that might as well be bumfuck Egypt because you don't know anybody. You bust your ass and you get told no a million times. And no starts to feel, it never feels comfortable. You become accustomed to no's because you have to. And you know that no does not, you don't ever mistake no for never. Correct. It doesn't mean that. But the no, you got to build up a, this skin, the shield, this, this armor. Yeah. Yeah, you got to build this armor for all the no's that are coming in, all the no's that are coming in. Not good enough. Blah, 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 not, not, More not, not, no. not, <laughs> not, I mean, not, it's not this, whatever, whatever it is. I even heard not black enough. I heard not or not hood enough. I heard that. This was intentional. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, 
Dougie, you got the white shirt on, so it makes it look darker, so it's good. But <laughs> hey, I got all these lights you know, around you... me. Makes me look even fucking more pale. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my you can God. hit that button and it, they can go orange. Hit that button, they go orange. Yeah. Hit the button, they go orange, right? Dougie uses like, filters on Zooms. Just long story short, man, it was like, yes, I understand the gravity of what Jax means and what Mortal Kombat means to me, but I haven't even, and because of my struggle was so, you know, I didn't, I wasn't an overnight success. Like, you know, I, I'm an 18-year overnight success story, right? Like, I've been doing this for a long time, bro, and I've been eating, there was times I was eating frozen broccoli and pretzels my guy like it just it wasn't always rosy for me all those times hit me of like all the times i almost gave up all the times that i cried myself to sleep wondering where the fuck my rent was gonna come from all the times when i had been through all that shit and i knew at least a certain part of that i can let go of right there in that gym in front of people crying i could let go of that so it's been a really big deal for me internally but then Perfect example, when that call was over, I hung up and I finished my workout. Because mm. I knew at the same time, okay, motherfucker, starts. you got an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Diff- a different level of work starts now. You got an opportunity now. You ain't got it. You got an opportunity. And so the opportunity turned into me gaining 45 fucking pounds of muscle, changing how I walked, changing how I spoke, watching all the footage there was on Joe Frazier and Mike Tyson, all of it, right. all of it. Immersing myself into Mortal Kombat 11 and learning how Jax moves, you know, journaling his process and his journey through his life and actually even going to a therapist as Jax yeah. to get past what I had to get. But like, how did Jax get to where he was? You don't just start killing into, into the dimensional ninjas and monsters one day. Right. You you have to, to build up to get there. Like maybe you were still team six. Maybe you were on a team right. that got El Chapo. Right. Maybe you were one of these guys. And those guys don't sleep well at night. Okay, right. cool. Why? Because they kill this many people. And sometimes they, you know, okay, right. cool. All right, so I had to work. That's interesting. I didn't even think not to interject, you know, because he's the only one in this group of characters that also is dealing with, he loses his arms. You know, so you have to deal with that whole process of you've got prosthetic arms that you got to come into context with. He's the most flawed, I think, out of all of the Mortal Kombat in terms of challenges, you know, of having to overcome things. They all have really, really incredibly rich, enriching backstories. Back stories, he, yeah. His is really interesting because, like, being from Houston, being from Texas, being having six tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, six tours is 14 years, basically. So, like, you spent your entire adult life out there, and you, you must have liked it. And then they don't just have you clearing houses at that point. They got you doing the El Chapo, the yeah. Laden shit at wet that work. point, right? Yeah. The, you're doing the wet work, right? You're doing the hush-hush work. And so for me, Jax had to feel like an assassin who chose the right side. There's times you look at Jax, you be like, I'm just happy he picked our side. <laughs> Damn, that motherfucker is not a joke. And also not to be judgmental of him and like and just and love him and accept him for for what he's been through and who he was. And so like, that was- I'm excited. It was interesting, man. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing too. Joker came out around that time. Joker came out while we were shooting the movie. And my boy and I, Louis Tan, he's the lead in Mortal Kombat. He's, this guy is amazing. He's like Bruce Lee and Tom Cruise had a baby. Call him Bruce <laughs> Cruise. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Cruise for life. And the guy can fight. The guy can really, really fight. The guy can act. He's got it all. 
and we went to go watch a bunch of movies together and we watched Joker. And it was like, right when we were like, we, we started with a bunch of the fight scenes, but we were getting into the acting portion of the movie. Not that we didn't have fight scenes throughout, but we started with some fight scenes. So we saw Joker and we were like, yeah, because who do you have to be to get yourself put into the position mm-hmm. that you're now fighting interdimensional ninjas and monsters and it's what you do. So it was almost like this psychological exploration of the savage, of the beast inside of all of us that we were allowed to explore and allowed to have come out when they said action. Mm-hmm. So like Mortal Kombat's more than what people think it is. It's uh-huh. exciting, you know, cause like, you know, I, like I told you I'm into the nerd stuff and all that and everything, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, the intellectual properties of science fiction, of course, are one thing. With mm-hmm. video games, it hasn't been always a great road. You know, they haven't had their Marvel moment quite no. yet, except for Mortal Kombat. No. The original Mortal Kombat did well, and you can maybe say the Resident Evil movies, but that's probably it. You know, that's probably it. it. Right. Yeah, they were trying to make it into a family thing. They didn't have the special effects. I've seen the movie. I've seen Mortal Kombat. I saw the movie in November. We shot some scenes that make the movie even better. Mm -hmm. But even if you guys just saw the movie that was in November, I can tell you this, and I've been saying this, and I'll always say this. This is the new bar. This is the greatest video game adaptation of all time, period. Hey, we're going to start the episode with that. I got to do this, and I hate to do it. But yep. one of my really good friends from back home, Carly, loves you. Mm-hmm. Okay? Anytime she sees you. Carly has good taste. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think I low-key tagged her because she made a comment on one of your pictures. Like, Dougie, you know, Makad, I'm going to put her on FaceTime real quick to say hello. Yeah. Is that okay? okay. Right, hold on. Hold of course. On. Yeah, yeah. She's like, I'm with my son, but I love him. He ain't going to uh, I'm like, it's all good. Sometimes <laughs> you, you get one opportunity. <laughs> oh, man. It's amazing. I love that. Can she hear me? No, no. There we go. I was like, don't, don't tell me you missed your moment, Carly. Hold on. I can't hear you. I'm walking outside. All right. Hold on. Oh, shit. So it looks like she's at some sort of water park. Can you just add it? You can't add it to the zone? Hold on. She said, my heart is beating so fast. <laughs> oh, that's so kind, man. Hold on. Hey. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Hold on. Carly, can you see? Uh-oh. Hey, Carly, how you doing? Oh my gosh. Hi. Am I holding the camera right? Do you see? I don't even know what to say. <laughs> say hi. How you doing? You good? I have been in love with you since Unnecessary Roughness. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's a long time. That was a good show. Thank you very much. You from New York? Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, Carly. Obviously, I don't have to tell you this. Uh, are you going to watch his new movie on April 16th, Mortal Kombat? Heck yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're out with your son right now, so what? I told you. But I was like, look, we're doing this interview with Makad. I was like, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get caught. Because I know how much you love uh, Makad. So I wanted to make sure I, I threw you that alley oh So, Kad, thank you. Carly, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carly. Hey, it's nice to meet you. Tell your son I said hello. I hope you watch Mortal Kombat April 16th. I will. I definitely will. All right. Nice to meet you. All right, Carl. I'll talk to you. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loves you. Obviously, I could talk to you all day. First of all, it's a privilege to call you a friend. You're one of the most genuine, insightful, real dudes that I've ever met, especially in this business. I'm very happy and proud. You have so much tenacity. You're very dedicated to the craft, which is obvious. And you have that winner's mentality. And it's something that you spoke about before. The nose can either break you 
or empower you. And you're one of those guys where those no's empowered you to have the career that you've had, that you have, and that you're going to have. Because I feel like Mortal Kombat is just the leap into the next plateau or the next level of your career. So I want to say congrats again on Mortal Kombat. Good luck on the release. And I'm praying and hoping that it's very successful and that everyone loves it. And, you know, we got to have you on in studio when the world is back to normal. Let's do it, brother. For sure, man. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Like I said, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm excited for you. I love what you just said about what it's going to be because it feels like a game changer. It really Mm -hmm. does. And it definitely is a game changer for you, man. So, you know, we're going to look back on this cast. He's like, man, this is right before it happened. And now he won't answer our phone calls no more. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Hey, call Joe Zadak at Artist First, Dougie. Like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Joe's my man. Well, then you already know. Yeah. You know. I fully plan on seeing you sitting right next to me on set one day doing something from that's a collaboration in both our hearts and minds. So, oh, yeah. I don't think that you can not take somebody's call when you believe in them the way I believe in both of you guys. Appreciate right. it. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Makad Brooks, Jax, Star of Mortal Kombat dropping on HBO Max and in theaters April 16th. Hey, let's go. Thank you guys. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. All right, so much to me. All right, guys. Thanks. Love. Take care. Much love. All right. Anything you want to say before we get on and get up out of here? Nah, man. We, I, like I said, we could done another couple hours and stuff. But now, got to get back to the regular world, back to the grind. Looking forward to it. It's always a pleasure, bro. All right, Jovan. Hey, thank y'all for joining us. This has been another episode of We Might Need Counseling Podcast. God bless you. Be well. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and comment on Apple Podcasts and visit our Facebook page at WMNC Podcast. You can also find the guys on Instagram at Dougie Cash and at Jovan underscore WMNC. Also, a big shout out to Studio Pod Media, Nodalab, and the Network Studios. Until next time, bye. <laughs>